Hi, and welcome back to Digging Up Ancient Aliens, our second episode. I'm glad to see that you weren't scared off from the first one, and it's amazing that you're here listening to me. I'm Frederick, and well, let's sig our way straight through the intro music. As I said, welcome back, and this is all right. So, as I said, welcome back, and this is the second episode of Digging Up Ancient Aliens. We will continue watching and breaking down and digging into the first episode of Ancient Aliens named The Evidence. And again, it was aired on April 20, 2010. And in the last episode, or in the first third of uh, the series, we talked a bit about the Sakara bird. We talked about the Golden Flyer. We talked uh, about the um, uh, Vimanas, a bit of Mercury engines. We touched on the Nazca people and the Nazca lines. And, um, then we went to the Zapotec people in Mesoamerica, continuing uh, all through King Salomon, continued with the maps, and straight through Ezekiel 5 through 16. And there we left off. That was the um, short version. And we open up. Uh, after the break uh, on uh, modern building tools uh, that people worked with uh, 100 tons block did they really cut them with the tools that they had um, well at least us fancy mainstream archaeologists and our things to believe that uh, well by Thor's beard um, apparently the valley temple is wrong um, in Giza, which is, well, <laughs> they aren't specific there at first, but they are talking about uh, Kufus or Cheops um, valley temple. Uh, and sure, they used uh, blocks that weigh about 100-200 tons and it's quite Impressive, we have the French Lex Luthor Robert de Beauval uh, coming in here. That these will, he's claiming that this block would be impossible uh, to move for even us. And that's not true, it would be tricky, and since we don't really need to move um, blocks that weigh this much on a regular basis without heavy machinery uh, it would take some time for us but I'm quite certain that we would figure this out and if we have there's 
many many theories some tested some just theorized but we have uh, methods that well uh, could help us move these type of blocks um, it's not really a case where you would need higher mathematics um, to move these type of blocks you need manpower that Egypt uh, during this period clearly had and a bit of ingenuity and it's not like they question the men here of uh, Ergra uh, that weighs even more in that form weighs 300 tons and when it was um, uh, still whole today is broken in pieces it's still quite impressive if you are in France you should you should head there and check it out uh, it's an impressive sight uh, but uh, it was 20 meters uh, when it was whole and it was moved several kilometers again I'm sorry I'm European and I did a little mistake here and didn't look up this in the uh, American <laughs> measurements um, but several kilometers would translate to several miles too uh, quite easily to be honest uh, but they did this roughly around 4700 BCE which is a lot earlier than the pyramids on the Giza plateau and nobody questioned that they moved this block or at least they don't do it yet <laughs> I might have opened Pandora's uh, box on this one now oops uh, blame me there if that would be the case I will uh, gladly handle that um, but they talk about that we're not sure uh, what the valley temple was used for and I can give that we're not 100% uh, we have uh, our uh, our hypothesis at least um, but we do have earlier examples of valley temples so it's not a new things uh, Sneferu uh, the father of uh, Khufu or Cheops um, had a valley temple too uh, on his pyramids um, and the hypothesis um, at least the one that I would say is maybe the most likely is that it was to receive the body of the dead pharaoh uh, the Egyptians usually buried their dead on the western bank uh, because in ancient Egypt this was uh, heavily associated with uh, death and maybe it's because to the west in Egypt you only have a desert which is not famous for it's uh, being full of life uh, not then not now um, so maybe that's why they associate uh, west with death and they even called dead people for westerners and i find that quite quirky and in a way quite cute to be honest uh, when i'm dead i would also want to be called a westerner uh, at least then uh, but I digress and um, theory among Egyptologists is as I said the valley temple was to receive the pharaoh um, and he then traveled from the east bank 
to the west uh, on both. And it might explain why uh, Cheops was buried with a boat in connection to his uh, Great Pyramid. And maybe even why it's a bit odd because it's a seaworthy vessel. They built it up, it was found in pieces. Uh, imagine that to be able to practically build IKEA furniture in the afterlife. I'm uh, not sure if that's really something to aim for. Um, um, anyway, uh, but it was disassembled and they assembled it again. And the archaeologist, and you can see it if you would go to Giza today, uh, Cheops boats, and it's quite amazing. Uh, it's a nice boat uh, in general, but it's a bit odd. The oars on it um, isn't really, they are a bit too small to really propel the boat properly, and you don't have any mast on this boat. Um, sure, the Egyptians were quite lazy, uh, lazy when it came to uh, travel by boat due to the Nile. Uh, if you want to go south, uh, you just put out your oars and row and the current take you. If you want to go north, you use your uh, sail, you just pop it up and the winds basically always head north there. So it's easily to sail. but. This boat for some reason don't have sail and have these wonky little um, uh, oars. Uh, so, well, the trip was not that far, so maybe they just pulled the boat or just needed it to operate for a very short time. Um, so the valley temple was where the pharaoh was received, got the last rites before heading into the pyramid. Or at least that would be the theory. Uh, but back to the show. They show some big statues uh, talking about granite, but uh, they're showing only sandstone <laughs> statues here. Uh, sure, there's a lot of impressive sandstone uh, statues, but most of them were carved in one place. But um, we also have a few examples even for how they moved big things. We, we, we will touch on this a bit more in just a short bit, but uh, in the show the ancient alien theories, they actually don't believe that aliens built pyramids. Apparently that was news to me. I thought that they did believe that uh, aliens built pyramids, but apparently the aliens just handed them some tools and a bit of know-how. Sure would not explain why Sneferu then needed three attempts at, to build a pyramid and how the evolution of the Egyptian burial rites uh, gets so, so clean and to be honest quite logical. So the burial rites in Egypt starts with sand, simple sandpit graves and probably there we get the mummification from. Since the dry sand and the heat would dry out the body and it looks like it was sort of alive still, uh, or at least preserved. And the sandpit graves were not uh, 
long-standing, unfortunately. Uh, you know, the sand blows off and bodies come up and uh, jackals go on to the bodies and, well, we have mummification, we also have um, maybe how Anubis uh, came to be associated with death. Um, since the jackals, they have a quite special digestive system, so they prefer rotting uh, meat uh, for some reason. So they usually are found uh, near cadavers and cemeteries. But um, therefore they move on to start to rectify mastabas that evolves to mastabas upon mastabas. And mastabas is a... Well, mastaba is a Arabic word for bench. Uh, so it's a bench-like temple structure would be the simplest way to explain it. Um, and from the mastaba on a mastaba we move to step pyramids which again is quite logical and a couple of failures and then a true pyramids so there's if you look at the, all the evidence we have here there's not really room for for aliens to be honest and well a spacefaring civilization civilization might not have so much issues with building in stones or maybe they were just bad at writing blueprints um, well unfortunately for us well, mainstream archaeologists um, the ancient Egyptians for some reason didn't write down things that well at least we would really like to know such on how to build a temple or how to build a pyramid or even how to mummify someone these for us important things uh, they they didn't write down at all I'm not really sure why maybe it's were supposed to be a sort of family secret. We know that at least um, the men of Anubis, um, or well, what we call embalmers uh, today, uh, was a trade that was inherited from uh, parent to child. Um, we even have something, a set of papyrus that we call the embalmers archive. They don't really say how they embalm somebody uh, or make a mummy but we knew know a bit about the practices and embalming embalmer was a family practice basically and they even split up the town so you had your own turf <laughs> uh, which you stayed on and you take that side and we keep on our side basically and maybe it was similar with architects it was uh, something that you inherited and they wanted to keep the trade secrets within the family so you didn't learn something to someone else and they could run off and uh, undercut you or something. And to be honest, my favorite pharaoh, uh, Sneferu, uh, is a quite good case against alien visitation since he have actually three pyramids. His first one was in Maidum and it started out like a step pyramid but halfway through the construction basically the he 
changed his mind. He wanted a true pyramid instead. So instead of the step form, he wanted the smooth sides. Uh, so they started to uh, fill out the steps with lime casing. Uh, but this made the whole pyramid quite unstable and it was abandoned. And today it basically looks like a tower if you would go and see it. Not much left there and it's very damaged, um, unfortunately for us. But he didn't give up there. Um, he's a pharaoh, he needs a grave, so he's going to do a second attempt, this time in Dashur. His second attempt is called the Bent Pyramid, and you will notice in a little bit. Um, so the pyramid started out at a 54 degree angled, and if you look at it, it shifts halfway through. Uh, like someone felt, ah, screw this and <laughs> just uh, filled out the rest at a much steeper angle. Um, and well, it's because, or it's partly because when you want to build a pyramid, you want the whole pyramid to be on solid bedrock and nothing on sands and sands with a shift and make the structure unstable. And this was the case here. They got part of it on sand instead of bedrock and the pyramid shifted. And if you would go inside you, this pyramid you can't go inside in at all, uh, basically, since it's very dangerous. But if you would be allowed to go in, you would notice that in the great chamber, you have cedar beams, big, big cedar beams holding it up uh, trying to keep the structure from falling apart and this was put up in Sneferu's time actually uh, but yeah he can't couldn't have a broken pyramid so they just topped it off and then they went for the third attempt uh, again in Tashurin it's called the red pyramid but this one he got actually right and I would say that, again, it's a case against uh, the ancient aliens. Mm, why would they need three attempts with alien technology to build a pyramid? And again, intergalactic traveling race comes to Earth saying this is how you build a pyramid for we will learn why later and you won't be disappointed, but they save the best for the last. Um, but they basically leave uh, us spacefaring technology and blueprints and we mess it up apparently. Uh, and it for some reason fits perfectly in the evolution of the burial sites. Yeah, I don't really buy that to be honest. But we won't stay too long on the pyramid. Uh, we meet a Kristan. They don't really put this up at first. Uh, he's an author, uh, but he's also a, a mining expert. Uh, so he should know a bit better what he's talking about there. But he's basically saying that uh, filler and that they would have needed someone who said, give me a stone in this side stat, and then it needed to get there immediately. And I'm not sure what he 
talking about their he seems to describe on how what a foreman would do <laughs> or an architect but he from the sound of it he don't buying that it was how they built it but if i would look at um, another site in abravash so in abravash in a stone quarry there's a granite block with a deep cut in it and they show it in it's about 10 centimeters maybe roughly uh, but apparently mr don has did spend days and nights thinking about it how they managed to do this mark it's quite middle on the stone and yeah sure i can give him that it looks weird not alien weird but yeah why did they saw that why did they stop uh, question that pops up but he only come to one solution the only solution that fits according to uh, mr dunn is that they had a circular saw you know sort of like the table saw that you might find in a wood shop today uh, with a blade with that's uh, about 11 meters in diameter or 35 feet we we and i'm quite lost for words about this one because mr dunn's easiest explanation is that they had fields of giant copper saws instead of what we really have uh, we do know that they used copper saw blades um, to cut stone in egypt with sand of uh, or other abrasive agents and you can make a fairly uh, efficient copper saw this way uh, another way to quarry or uh, cut stone would be to carve out a few cracks in the stone and put in wooden wedges add water to it the wood will then expand and break off the stone block so we have an understanding on the different ways they did quarry stone um, stone saw was one of them and you don't need this giant circular saw uh, you just need a much smaller saw and a bit of sand and he's almost right maybe watch too much steampunk uh, fan fiction um, but Mr. Dunn is looking for machine marks everywhere he goes because that's his thing and apparently they are everywhere in the Luxor Museum. There's apparently on uh, Amon's buttocks on a statue there. Mm, what statue might ask? Well, Amun's. You might say there's a lot of them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it seems sometimes as they throw things out uh, and making them as vague as possible so you can't go and double check things easier they they show a picture of the statue and i can't really tell much from it and couldn't find my way to what statue it is in question if you go to timestamp 3934 uh, and know what the statue is and what it's called or how i can find it uh, let me know head over to diggingupancientaliens.com Go to contacts, shoot me an email or reach out through Facebook, Twitter, your favorite <laughs> means of communication. More or less, we have it all, basically. But uh, 
they have a CGI of these fields of giant saw. Apparently they didn't have one, they had multiple to cut all these stone blocks because Ocean's razor haven't really occurred to them. They touch on the temple of Jupiter, uh, Baalbek in Lebanon, and the Maria stone that weighs more than a thousand tons, and the stone of the pregnant woman. We meet an arth architect named Peter Paltikov. Uh, that when I <laughs> saw him quickly, it uh, looked like a pen from you know Pen and Teller, uh, but you know. Uh, the B-movie version of him. Um, but he's talking about that it would be almost impossible to move stone without machinery and then we need Roger, Roger Hopkins. That's a stone sculpture. Should maybe have some good ideas on how they work with stone back then, but apparently not. He starts his talking head with talking about the company he hired to move really big stones have problems uh, loading it up on the trucks and therefore ancient people would not have been able to move it since if the company he used can't operate an excavator properly instead of maybe a crane they couldn't uh, lift heavy stones. I didn't really uh, get what he were aiming at there to be honest and we have Robert Bouval coming back again uh, still looking like Lex Luthor uh, I will continue calling him that to be honest and he says that we should accept that the ancient Egyptians built all of this with just manpower and some strings yeah basically uh, again it's not something that requires higher mathematics or really machinery you need manpower and some ingenuity and even if we don't know exactly how they moved all stones in every case, we, we have good ideas on how they could achieve it. Uh, only because you don't know how they did something, it doesn't mean that no one can understand it and that it's impossible. Otherwise, all tricks made by magicians need to be real. <laughs> if, uh, with the same sort of logic and they again they're talking about why would they do something that's so difficult you you don't do difficult things seems to be their thesis say that to polar explorers and get back to me and <laughs> um, i like mountain climbing it's tough um, i still do it um, there's a lot of things there really i I don't get this that part it's important for pharaoh that's basically a god walking on earth of course you want to help the your main god to get into the afterlife uh, but we have Giorgio again um, saying something rather interesting quote uh, the master builders had the capabilities of putting some type of white substance paper like substance onto the stones and they rode on it and then basically gave the stone block a push and then it moved for six feet as by magic uh, did that move uh, by magic nah of course not some technology was used and i can't find a single source on any of that if you know anything about this white substance, paper-like substance that he's talking about, 
send me an email and we can uh, bring it up later because I turned off completely blank and it doesn't really fit with our understanding on Egyptian stonework or technology. Uh, for example, we have, as I said, we don't know how they built pyramids. They didn't leave any written documents or how they move stone, but we have from time to time things that uh, pop through. For example, if we go to the 12th dynasty tomb of uh, Jehotep, you have in that tomb an illustration of 172 men uh, pulling a, what looks like an alabaster statue of him on a sledge, a rather big one too. And if we go to Hatshepsut's temple, in there we can see how she uh, moved uh, two of the obelisks that she quarried. Um, and these are huge obelisks. Uh, one of the bigger one in Egypt. Uh, so it's not a small feat, but she moved them twice at the same time on barges on the Nile. So for the Egyptians, it wasn't a remarkable feat in that way. Sure, she was very proud, so proud that she put it on uh, her temple even. That's saying something, um, but still shows that it was possible and something they actually did. And we have learned a lot about stonework and uh, pyramid building from an unfinished pyramid that you can find in Zavet al-Aryan. And it seems as they actually cut the stones into just rough shapes into the quarry and then polished them properly at site. I would have assumed that they finished the whole stone, so it was a complete slab that arrived to the site. But no, they apparently just rough cut it, chip it, and then polish it on site. But it's also logical in a sense that if you polish it on site, you can, you can get this perfect sit, uh, fit with the stones. But we have David Childress, uh, who won't do anything that's difficult, I think. Too much and he says to, mo to move that much stone it must have been weightless. So you know the solution to how they moved stone was uh, aliens gave the Egyptians a levitation gun. Yeah, because <laughs> by boulders shaved. Uh, now this part was pretty ridiculous but as you start to notice, the episode started quite calmly. Sure, it was a flying bird and awful looking trebuchet, but it won't get less crazy. We're not there yet. I won't spoil anything for you. But let's, let's move on. And we're back on cutting stones with... But again, moving stone isn't... It's not that difficult and even we have Herodotus um, sure Herodotus often needs to be taken with a lot of grain of salts but um, in his book when he visited Egypt he talks about 90,000 men and it's not an unreasonable uh, manpower to be able to conscript uh, for building uh, Cheops pyramid. Uh, remember that Egypt back then, uh, not any longer, but back
back then they had inundation so the Nile water rose above the above the farms which meant that the farmers couldn't really do anything so you have this massive manpower that can't really do much uh, that you can put to work uh, for well at least three months of a year so you have a workforce a willing workforce too so don't think of that it was uh, made by slaves that's just a uh, old uh, old theory that don't really hold water we even have uh, ins we have found inscriptions on uh, blocks uh, on the back of blocks on Cheops pyramid and uh, it says uh, this was made by Hufus gang and things like that so there seem to be some pride in it and we have workers tomb uh, nearby and we even have medical papyrus that seems to describe uh, how to treat accidents uh, during pyramid building a lot of crushing and uh, broken bones and things like that how you would treat it um, quite decent advice there uh, not more than med modern medicine advice but uh, decent enough for the most part uh, all right let's move on we continue with hopkins um, who's using a lot of modern tool to shape stone and he talks a bit of, about it and that he again we have this i can't think of a way um, therefore they can't have done it on the by themselves so stone masonry apparently need alien technology i can't really wrap my my head about, around this to be honest it's um they weren't stupid they were just as intelligent as we are today uh, with as much as ingenuity and since they could write and not only worry about storing they they could learn things out uh, between each other there's but they had uh, means to learn and uh, preserve technology so it would uh, move on to the next generation and then we're moving back to uh, the americas and we open up the next section on Pumapunko defines logic. So the stone shapes apparently need some sort of higher mathematics that we don't even know, uh, even today's computer, according to uh, the alien specialist on the telescreen, uh, claims that computer would say that this is impossible. And they actually have an on-site uh, shot here so we see Giorgio with Hopkins um, and they this discussing uh, stone cutting in Pumapunko so Giorgio is asking a few questions or making statements and Hopkins is um, basically agreeing he don't say it's impossible that they would have it just that it would have taken them a lot of time and who would have that much time basically uh, today we would need to use computer with the diamond tip drills to do anything like this without this I would assume that this is impossible and they mostly focusing on the eight shape blocks and then and the and cross that's quite famous and they claiming that there's no imperfection and they are so perfectly made that you can basically cut yourself on the edges they are so sharp 
Um, but if you look into it, well, uh, you would really need to take that with a grain of salt, <laughs> to be honest. They don't mention this in the episode, but um, those are perfectly fitted, but you, you need just simple tools to do it. And there's evidence that they were clasped together with metal uh, to keep them very tight. And during excavation of Pumpunka, we have these richer ceramics and um, seems to have been a lot of feasting going on here. So the theory is that this is a sort of uh, either a palace or that feasting was a part of the settlement. And today the Andean cross have become a symbol, uh, not just from Puma Punka, but uh, the Quechua and Inca culture in general have adopted that. And it comes from this Tiwanaku area and the area f around Tiwanaku and late Titicaca. Um, <laughs> that's such an unfortunate name. Uh, yeah, it becomes a bit childish when I hear it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but at Puma Punko, um, it's mostly elite complexes. And But if you look on the outside of them, you find these simple houses. And uh, it seems to be as the elite lived at Puma Punko. And you have the working class satellite around the area. And if you check the show notes at diggingupancientaliens.com um, you again find more literature um, about it. And we return to Michael Dunn, who is claiming that the stones look as they were molded. Well, too bad for him. We have uh, the Tiwanaku people's uh, tools and we even have examples of unfinished blocks. And Giorgio drops in and say that Inca had capabilities to soften stone. And we've heard this, but nobody really takes that serious to make melt stone. And that's really something we, we really can't do today. And it's not a thing that we think the Tenvanaco people had, to be honest here. And we again get a quote I can't really wrap my hand my head <laughs> about from uh, Michael Dunn. I can't help to think that whoever was behind this uh, thought the press, uh, process from the beginning to end. They didn't just quarry the rock and then decide how the heck we're going to transport this. Now nah, they needed to know from the beginning to end. So basically he's describing that they used blueprints and yeah, he's right. They thought the process through and they did it. And they cut to uh, Machu Picchu and claiming that it would be a lot easier to transport a lot of smaller stone, you know, since they are easier to carry to Machu Picchu and then melt them instead of, you know, cutting them. Uh, so aliens came show them how to melt and shape rock and then took their stuff and went home. If they were really melting rocks in mold, we would have, I assume, a lot of mold since no block is identical. So either they made 
many 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 modes uh, had this alien technology or they acquired it quite close by and put it together at the site basically and we cut back to Mr. Hopkins the um, stone cutter and he's under the impression that you need to have metal tools to do stone cutting um, they must have te some technique that escapes me and I've been in the business for 40 years he says and we move on to uh, we will talk a bit about so basically quarrying stone uh, again we have the stone saw we have the so we have the stone saw we have chisels we have carpenters angles we have dolerite balls um, especially on the obelisk we have traces of how they quarry the stone with a harder stone and uh, so again we we have our understanding and we have stone workers tools i'm not i'm not really sure what they're aiming at here um, comes off a bit lazy from them uh, you could easily find examples of stone cutter tools in both the americas egypt uh, everywhere where they had stone cutting basically so well, Mr. Hopkins, you need to go back to the sources there and maybe read up a little bit. But we're moving on to um, Debbie Callis, a PhD, um, a historian at the Petrie Museum in London. And Petrie is one of the earliest, more serious excavator or archaeologists. So he was the first one that didn't really just excavate for treasure, but he was after knowledge. And from the look of it, it seems almost as if Debbie maybe was tricked into this. I know that Dr. Kenneth Fader usually talk about token archaeologists um, in different interviews that I've heard with him. He's usually talk about ancient aliens. Uh, here and there and I have a lot of uh, nice books out uh, I will add some of them to the show notes that you should go and check out um, but they're talking about Petrie and his discoveries and they're focusing in not on the pottery shards or that he found one of the oldest um, mummies that we ever found um, no they're talking about the tubular drill course and Petrie was thinking that maybe they had access to diamonds or some jewel to be able to cut it but never found any evidence of diamonds or jewels that would be able to cut it but they're then moving on to show a tubular drill from ancient Egypt saying that this wouldn't work showing that it clearly works and they show one of Petri's um, drill course and you can see that it has markings on it from uh, what looks like the drill and it's circular but the drill core that they they show uh, or make themselves with the tools that they had uh, back then um, doesn't really match up when you put it on the magnifying you know when you're comparing a bullet <laughs> basically and um, that science is a bit bunk too but that's a completely different subject to be honest but I will uh, add some links to both the drill core and uh, a bit of good reading upon this 
uh, in the show notes. Again, at diggingupancientaliens.com. So if the mark don't match, it has to be aliens apparently. And then they switch fastest lighting to the boxes in the Serapium. That's a quite late invention in ancient Egypt, but Mr. Gundam is walking around being awed by all the exact angel angles. Um, you know, since they don't, didn't have a woodworker's angle. Uh, so yeah, the angles are 90 degrees, but that tool is quite easy to make, to be honest. And quite basic for uh, any handyman, uh, really. So we're opening up on the C segment, basically. We're going to recap the Moses story. And here I was a bit thrilled about what they would talk about. And there's a lot to... Would it be escape from Egypt, the plagues? No, they will discuss what mana is. No, really, we will talk about what mana is. And apparently the Bible isn't clear what mana is, you know, since the author wouldn't have a word for mana or know what they saw. But if you look at, they bring up the Sohar, which is a Jewish music text written um, in the 1300s. He claims it was tube and stuff coming down from the ancient of days. I couldn't really find my way to the passage, but I do know that the ancient of days is a quite accepted uh, synonym for God within the Jewish literature. Uh, so find this uh, name for God in a 13th century manifest isn't really that surprising. Um, but the show wants it to be something more exciting there, to be honest. But we meet uh, Rodney Dale here. Uh, he's a writer of The Mana Machine, uh, which is a book based on Dale's and uh, Mr. Sasson and their own translation of the Sohar. Uh, Sasson claims to know Hebrew, but the thing is the Sohar is written in Aramaic with Gaelic and Portuguese uh, words and influences. So I'm not really sure if the translation is sound, but they go on to saying that the machine would totally work, except the machine described haven't solved world hunger. But they bring up that NSA, uh, NASA did experiment in the 60s and kind of leave it hanging there for a while. They will uh, come back to it uh, later, uh, but they are uh, switching to a Peter Feibag uh, talking about the machine the machine used morning dew algae and laser or or nuclear reactor yeah and of course they kept the nuclear reactor in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Covenant. you know therefore people who got close to it lost their nails and hair that part seems to be sort of made up by Giorgio, who's talking here. I think he's trying to refer to when the Palestinians took the Ark from the Israelite in the first book of Samuel, uh, chapter 5 and 6. There they get tumors, hemorrhoids, uh, a play on mice and panic. Uh, no lost nails or things that they claim in the show. How do I know this? Yep. Yeah. 
Uh, I've read Bible a long time ago, but it's getting atheist. And they have uh, this part of the show that's called Bible Peace Theater, where they reenact the whole Bible from first Genesis to the last page. Basically, uh, if you haven't, check them out, scathingatheist.com, uh, wherever podcasts live. Uh, not affiliated with me, but good show if you don't know about it. But they want to get uh, these descriptions in the Bible to be radiation poisoning. Uh, but radiation poisoning don't really have symptoms such as they might be thinking about key. They might be thinking about it's not really radiation Sure, it is, but it's different. If we, it's not radiation poisoning. If you look at the symptoms of radiation poison, poison, we have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, fever, dizziness and disorientation, weakness and fatigue, hair loss, bloody vomit and stool, uh, infections, low blood pressure, and if you have any or all of these uh, symptoms you should really see a doctor to be honest and uh, then you might actually have radiation poisoning and remember don't take medical advice from any podcast go and see a doctor instead but if you look into the book of exodus who gives really detailed instruction on how to build the ark sure it is a wooden box covered with a bit of gold basically but not that would protect anyone from the radiation and remember they carried it through the desert themselves would have become sick in that case but they gloss over it we go over to chlorella algae because that's what they had in the machine and uh, so with all the radiation and the lasers and the radiation they managed to get not mana but chlorella algae apparently according to the tv show and the sabbath was wasn't invented because god had a resting day while making his creation it was invented because they needed to clean the mana machine and they only got out of the desert since it broke down according to the show apparently but well for some time chlorella algae actually was thought to be one of those things that that would solve world hunger and hunger and there was a lot of scientific interest in it at least in the 1940s not the 60s the show mentions but well um, the chlorella alias have a lot of production difficulty that made it stop at the experimental research stage to be honest chlorella isn't as productive as the world as is in nature it would need to be grown in carbonated water would be quite it would be quite expensive <laughs> with carbonated water to grow uh, this to sustain the whole world and the process is quite uh, sophisticated with a lot of additional cost and to harvest the crop uh, that too was a quite difficult project so moving on to the chlorella to be a viable food source the cell was actually would have needed to be pulverized and it could only be nutritional potentially then potentially nutritional in highly modified artificial situation and of course another issue was 
wasn't that tasty to be honest <laughs> so yeah uh, the mana machine not buying it to be honest okay so we're go we're there's summing up a little bit we have drills we have lift we have nuclear reactors um, you might wondering how did they power all of this they're starting at the great pyramid of Giza again we're back in Egypt at least I had right there in episode one that it would this episode would contain a lot of a lot of Egyptian stock footage but they're talking about the pyramid and that they don't have beautiful hieroglyph or drawings in the Kiev's pyramid and if you would go there you would notice it too I've, I've been in the great Kiev's pyramid and I've, I too was disappointed when I came in to see that there was no hieroglyphs on the wall no book of the dead uh, but that was a later invention they didn't do it on the walls then uh, it come came much later I, I blanking a bit on it now but yeah none of the earlier pyramids do have text of the dead on the walls uh, might have been in the coffered or just a later invention uh, expanding on uh, the pharaoh's life after death uh, because re living after death was in the earliest period actually reserved for the pharaoh it wasn't believed that any commoner would uh, rise in the duat but uh, later it came especially with the pyramid text and the book of the dead later on they're talking about the design doesn't make sense of the great pyramids with all the small tunnels and uh, the great grand galleries and they, that they had to ship in granite again um, that it would be too much work and they're talking that nobody know what the pyramid really is for uh, some think that it is a grave site yeah uh, we know that it's a grave site but uh, moving on uh, it could be a temple or maybe a initiation chamber for some weird cult Mr. Dunn again you know the one with the giant saw in the first uh, episode yeah he's basically talking about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's encounter or what we should call it in there except that he don't want to mention Napoleon by name as if he would get sued by the Bonaparte family but the story is that when Napoleon was in Egypt with all his scientists and uh, and soldiers, he visited the Egypt of Giza, or we know that he visited it, and he went inside. And according to some, he converted to Islam there. And to others uh, say that he asked his entourage to leave him alone. And he was inside the pyramid for quite some time, and then he came out just ashen white and when his soldier asked him what what happened he just looked at them and said you wouldn't believe me yeah it's basically hearsay but <laughs> and they seem to allure to this story in the in the episode here and we meet philip coppens that claiming that uh, the pyramid would be a tomb is completely wrong since we haven't found a mummy in them sure we haven't but yeah that's just silly to be honest and we meet french lex luther um says 
why bury someone in the pyramid basically and they are obvious grave sites and could be easily robbed sure he has a point that's why they moved they moved to the valley of the kings later on uh, but we switching back to mr don and he really wants it to be called a machine for some reason you will notice it quite soon um, and he talks about the air shafts and they are a bit of a mystery we don't know even the mainstream archaeologists don't know what they are for uh, but we're not going to claim what the ancient aliens series claim to be honest at least you will notice it soon why uh, but mr dunn goes on that they found some salt in the queen's chamber and i found no reference to this except for things referring to mr dunn um, but basically it seems as they are trying to say that the, the pyramid is basically a giant potato potato battery you know you have salt and some other chemicals and copper and metal and you have an electrical current basically and then they go on saying that so the great pyramid was drawing power from the earth and converting that power to microwave power so the chemical goes into the air shell shafts and mixes in the queen chamber the hydrogen will then go into the upper chamber the energy from earth is then vibrating the whole pyramid the whole pyramid is vibrating and the vibration are then picked up by the grand gallery so the grand gallery is under resonator hall the energy then went out of one of the other shafts and then the pyramid have been able to produce power maybe for several hundreds of years creating basically microwave power and you might say what at this point i did i didn't twist any words or take things out of context it it's actually what they're saying in the show and <laughs> uh, i did laugh here to be honest i did and then basically moving on here directly to tesla of course the tesla cult is quite weird nicholas tesla then uh, not a car but they're talking that the tesla would broadcast electricity and uh, that tesla's wireless electricity device worked just fine the electric curve would have traveled in air water with different minerals and trial and then tesla was basically just recreating what the ancient egyptians did but they seem to misunderstood Tesla's broadcast power tower, basically. And then they move on talking about the Tesla built the first generating, putting it at Niagara Falls. I, yeah, we had internet in 2010. Anyone could easily have Googled when this was made. I get that maybe in search of might have pulled something like this since it was hard back in the 70s to look things up, but yeah uh, edison built one generator in 1882 and another one in 1819 and george westinghouse was even earlier with a transformer in 1886 and uh, george westin also with his transformer system uh, would uh, lead would create what is called today as the war of the current Tesla might have been first in Niagara Falls, can give in that, but it's it's a bit of a misrepresentation there, to be honest. And then we go back to the obelisk, because apparently they had a freaking water wheel connected to it to help with generating electricity. So 
first of all, uh, Obelix wasn't placed near the Nile, where a water source is. And stone can't generate a current. It's a very, very bad conductor for electricity. And yeah, I don't really get this part. It can be double checked and a water wheel on the Obelix. Come on guys, you, you should know that uh, Obelix were found in for the last period connection and switch back to Mr. Dunn and he talks about his uh, theory that the pyramid sends a microwave to a satellite maybe in orbit or maybe charging the alien spaceship from Earth or maybe it sends power to Easter Islands because why not? Um, or maybe yeah charging the alien spaceship because they needed more power so they MacGyvered uh, a pyramid and some obelix into um, generating electricity because that would be the easiest way and maybe one of the alien uh, mechanics spilled beer in the power generator on the intergalactic spaceship or something I don't know they they leave it there they don't go deeper I just have more questions, a bit disappointed, feeling a bit empty, and I'm a little bit scared to be honest. <laughs> so that was the first episode and end of episode two of our little podcast here. To summarize this episode, do I buy the evidence provided? No, not at all. All of it was super weak. Uh, sometimes dishonest and if this will be the level that they keep throughout the seasons I will be disappointed to be honest uh, I thought it would be at least a bit more challenging to you know look things up on them but apparently not uh, <laughs> but again thank you for listening we will be back very soon with episode 3 and episode two of Ancient Aliens. So the first season we will split split every episode in two since they are quite long. This show will run really long in that case. But thank you for listening. I'm super happy to have you here. Again, head over to diggingupancientaliens.com. Look at the show notes. Uh, you can read a bit about me, myself. Uh, you can contact me and find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think we haven't put up a TikTok that's quite empty at the moment. Hopefully we will solve that later on. But uh, please follow us. Please leave a positive review wherever you can. Anything on pa Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Subway Doors maybe. Nah, don't, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much. And... We will meet again. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 